sermon followed by music. <laughs> so, if the sermon's not going so well, there's music afterwards. Then there's coffee after the music. Uh, we can begin with the first slide. This will be the sermon on the message. And the reading is from the Gospel of Mark, uh, first uh, 13 verses, and I'll read those verses just now. I'm really interested in the first verse, but that would be a very short reading, wouldn't it? The first 13 verses. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. May God bless the reading of his word. Beginnings. Well, it's a title full of beginnings, isn't it? Beginnings, beginnings, and yes, beginnings. It's the title of my message today. Our lives are filled with beginnings and endings, too. There's been a promo for the Terry Fox Foundation that's been playing on TV, and some of you are nodding, you've seen it. And it shows Terry Fox uh, running and then stopping. It says, when Terry stopped, we began. That is, when he finished his run, the Terry Fox Foundation and all that's happened began. These, these beginnings and endings, beginnings and endings are part of everyday life. My, my day began this way. Um, it ended this way. There's so many uh, beginnings and endings that we have. So I want to talk about especially beginnings this morning by starting at the beginning of beginnings. The Bible begins with the words in the beginning. And since in Hebrew the preposition and the noun are joined, the very first, it's the very first word, the book of Genesis, in the beginning. That was the start of everything. That's how, that's everything that happens in the Bible happens because of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or the skies and the earth. 
Now, creation, uh, if we read on to verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void. And so this account of creation understands there was something that, that was already there that was in kind of an unformed situation. Your translation might, in fact, say, or you'll have a footnote that says, when God create, began to create the heavens and the earth, uh, they were without form and void. So there was a sort of chaotic uh, element to what was there before. And in the Bible, this, this kind of chaos, disorder, comes back from time to time and tries to undo creation. So this first chapter, Genesis down into chapter 2, is kind of like the umbrella for the whole Bible. And so when Jesus is sitting on the mountain teaching his disciples, it's the earth that was arranged at that time that he's, he's on. And when Paul is wrecked in the shipwreck, uh, the seas that, that smashed the ship against the rocks, well, this is the earth that was made back then. And at the very end of the Bible, when John is exiled to this island called Patmos, well, that island was already there. So everything that happens in the Bible happens after this verse where the earth comes into existence. Now, that story, that first account of creation, which, which comes down into chapter 2, has human beings sort of made at the end. So God says, let's make humankind in our likeness. And so we are made. Uh, the earth is populated. And we are in God's likeness. We have intelligence. We can, we're spiritual beings like God too. And then in chapter 2, we have focus upon what? Focus on the human beings that God made. And those human beings are our theological parents. And, and we are their children. So the beginning of beginnings, everything starts there. And then as we follow the story of the Bible, in those early chapters of Genesis, we read that uh, things didn't go all that well, did they? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Susie. She shook her head. So uh, things didn't go all that well, and that brings us to the flood story. When, when the text says there was only one righteous person, who's Noah. And so God can start over. That's the point. God can start over. And so God starts over with this small group of people, Noah and his family. But that doesn't go all that well either. Because we come down into chapter 11 and human beings have become proud and arrogant and they're going to build... They're going to build a tower up to heaven so that they can be gods themselves, be like God. God starts over again. And God starts with two people, Abraham and Sarah. And there's something new here. The element of faith enters, uh, enters the arena. And now Abraham and Sarah are these faithful pair in the world and who... who give birth to others and to a whole nation of faithful people, we could say. And the relationship with God, the community is different because this is a community that's going to be based on trust in God. God chooses to start over, but it's a different kind of beginning, isn't it, with Abraham and Sarah. 
And then centuries passed, many centuries passed, down through the period of, this is for all of you like history, this is kind of a rundown of biblical history, isn't it? So centuries passed, there's kingship, uh, there, there, there uh, is um, uh, our military exploits of various kinds, David and Solomon, and then things go awry again, don't we? It brings us to the story of the exile when the Babylonian armies come in the 6th century and take away thousands and thousands of people. We call this the exile. And they're in Babylonia, scattered about in communities for 50, 60 years or so, and then there is a return home. There's a return home. People go back to Jerusalem. Not all go back because life had become pretty good for some, but the community, the sacred story, the, string, the line goes back to Jerusalem, back home to this place where the temple was. And after some period of time, the temple is rebuilt, the community is rebuilt, and, and uh, worship is restored. So there's this beginning, which was fraught with all kinds of problems, because people, there was the memory of the way it had been. And everybody wishes it could be the way it was before. The temple, which had been there for four or five centuries, it had been destroyed, and what the people could build when they got back wasn't like that. It wasn't nearly as good. It wasn't as beautiful, etc., etc. So the community struggled for a long time as it settled into this new beginning. So if we pass for a few centuries, uh, the world shifts. And the superpowers change. And Alexander the Great comes on the scene with the Greek language and takes the Greek language, culture, and so on, all the way from Europe to India. And so this one language, this vast empire, which at least in a literary sense, people who could read and write, Greek is the language you want to learn. And then, you recall, Alexander wasn't very old when he died. Uh, the legend was that um, he, he'd conquered all the world, so there was no more to conquer, so he died. It wasn't like, it wasn't like that. Malaria, maybe. But he died, and his generals carved it up amongst themselves. And so the most important were Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus in Syria. And this opens up two or three centuries where these uh, generals and their descendants um, uh, fight with each other, they, they marry each other, and so on. And the Jewish community is in Jerusalem in the middle of it all, and eventually there is a war, which we call the Maccabean War, because the Syrians wanted to absorb, wanted to absorb culturally and religiously and so on, wanted to absorb this community in Palestine, and some of those people would not go. And so that gives rise to the Maccabees, a group of, of guerrilla war fighters, we might say, who defeat the Syrians. Uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate humiliation was the sacrificing of a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem in 168 BC. And then in, three years later, in December, the temple is rededicated. That is, there's a new beginning. There's a new beginning. It starts over. 
And then those empires gave way to the Romans, and so the gospel story of the New Testament takes place against the backdrop of the Roman Empire, which extended from Britain way across uh, far, far. So that's kind of the situation uh, that we come to in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to go there in the next slide. Sure enough. Okay. Beginning. <clears throat> I'm really interested in the title with which Mark's gospel begins. It is the word beginning. I should say starts, shouldn't I? It starts with the word beginning. That's the first word. Now, the New Testament isn't arranged according to the chronology of the books when they were written. Uh, if it were, we'd start reading Galatians. Yeah, that'd be the first book. Or maybe First Thessalonians. Those would be the first books in the New Testament, if they were arranged chronologically. But of course, it makes sense that it's arranged the way it is. I mean, the story of Jesus is the foundational story. So we have the Gospels. Now, among the Gospels, there are four. We don't know why there were four. An early Christian scholar named Origen said there were four Gospels because there are four points to the compass. And no one since has offered any better explanation for why there were four. And as you know, the first three are very much alike. We call them synoptic Gospels. And then there's John. The first of the Gospels the first of the first three, and the first of the first four, Mark. And so this word, beginning, is the first word of any of the Gospels that was written down. Beginning. Now, Matthew and Luke, who appear both to know Mark, don't start there, do they? And so in Matthew, we have the genealogy, and in Luke... There's Luke's, uh, Luke's, Luke offers the reason for why he's writing. And he dedicates his gospel to someone named Theophilus. So here's Mark. So the first word, the first gospel is the word beginning. A start. And wherever there's a beginning, there's an ending, isn't there? It presumes. So something has passed and something new has come. Now, I, I ask here, how much is beginning? What, how much of the Gospel of Mark is the beginning? Uh, is, it, is it just the first three verses? That is, this is the beginning, and then the prophecy from Isaiah. Does it include John? It might go to verse 8. That is, John the baptizer was the beginning. Or wouldn't it be appropriate after verse 13 because after the temptation or the trials in the wilderness, Jesus' ministry begins. So that was preparatory to his ministry. So maybe by beginning it means uh, the first, did I read the first 13 verses? Maybe it means the first 13 verses. Or if we, if we think about it, uh, the beginning of the story is the whole story of the gospel, isn't it? 
might it possibly include all of, the, all of Mark's gospel? Because that really is the beginning, isn't it? The beginning of Christianity is in Jesus' ministry. Well, I think probably what Mark has in mind is, is within the first chapter. Now, I noticed that in the particular Bible I was reading from, it has titles in it. And so, I have to look again. And you may be using the same translation. Um, the beginning of the Galilean ministry, verse 14. So, there is the beginning of the gospel, and then there's the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So, this is the start of something. Now, the beginning of the gospel. Well, your translations will say the beginning of the good news, probably. And there's an odd thing about the word gospel. Now, our, our language, uh, English language, has lots and lots of Latin-based words, doesn't it? Some say, what, 60%. And all those words that end in T-I-O-N, like congregation, information, uh, many, all these words, they come from Latin. And we have words that come from Greek, too. And we have words that come from Greek that are part of our church language, like evangelical, evangelistic evangel. And all of those words are, come directly from the Greek word, which means good news or, 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 yeah, good news, good tidings. But the odd thing is that uh, the word that we use for, for good news, good tidings, the word gospel has its own history. And it comes from good story, old English. Good story become, becomes God's story. And then if you say it quickly, you'll get gospel. So God's story. Because a spell at one time was a story, wasn't it? Uh, so a story, so God's story. And this is the word we use for this word that would otherwise be like evangelistic or evangel and so on. So this is... God's story. This is the good news. Now, this isn't the first time. This word for good news doesn't just begin to be used in the Bible in Mark or in the other Gospels or in the rest of the New Testament because it is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in situations where good news is being brought. For example, many of you recall uh, that King David's, one of King David's sons, Absalom, led an insurrection against him. And so David's personal, uh, he had a retinue of soldiers, went out and chased him down, and he came to a very bad end, as, as you know. But David was waiting. He was waiting uh, for good news to be brought to him. And a number of runners came and said, good news, there's good news. I have good news for you. But it turns out that the news is, it's, it's not good news for him so far as his son is concerned, is it? Because Absalom was killed. But that word occurs in there, good news. And it appears also at the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, 61, where uh, good news is coming to God's people. So it's not a, a foreign word to the New Testament. It's a word that was used before as well. 
the good news. The beginning of the good news, Mark says. And then the beginning of the good news of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the name that Mary was instructed to give to him, wasn't it? And it's a personal name, like your name and my name. Names have meanings, and some words have names that we have have really quite important meanings. The word Jesus means salvation. It's the word Joshua in the Old Testament. So Joshua, his name would be Jesus in, in Greek. So it means salvation. Uh, Mary was told, call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So this is Jesus' given name, his historical name. So Jesus is an historical figure, and he has this particular name, which is significant. I don't know what your name means, but uh, it could mean something that um, uh, indicates brave, or it could be a precious metal, it could be a flower, it could be a lot of different things. Now, my own name, I have an esteemed ancestor. I'm not Italian, but Claudius, you know, uh, can claim him. But one time, you get curious about these things. So I was a teenager, I looked this up, and uh, it means lame. That's right. My name means lame, which is, I don't know if Claudius was lame. But uh, when, when uh, people use the word lame, it's often attached to another word, isn't it? So all, our names have meanings. Some of them are of this significance and that. But Jesus was significant because it means salvation. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this can be understood in two ways. Is it the gospel about Jesus Christ, or is it the gospel that Jesus proclaimed? And either one is possible. You can read it that way. I think, it's, I think Mark intends that it's the story about Jesus Christ. It's the story about him and what he did. But, of course, it also includes the things that Jesus said, doesn't it? and what he preached, which was the kingdom of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. So this is a religious title, isn't it? Messiah means, it's in Hebrew, Messiah, and it's Christ in Greek. It means the anointed one. He is anointed of God. He is the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And depending on the translation you use, you may have a note there. The title, the introduction may end with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it ends there in the text, you'll have a footnote that says some manuscripts have. But increasingly, modern translations read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because the words Son of God are in, uh, not a majority maybe, but... Uh, many early manuscripts. Christ, the Son of God. Now, those words are important in the title because the gospel, as we read through it, is going to take us to Jesus' crucifixion. And at the scene of his crucifixion, there's a centurion who is witnessing what's happened. And you recall he says, uh, surely, or see, this man was the Son of God. Or you may have a footnote in your Bible there that says, as Son of God. 
Either way, this man was divinity. The soldier says, who is a dispassionate observer to what's going on. He's seen crucifixions before. The Romans, lots of people they crucified. So this man, he's not a stranger to the scene. He looks on and witnesses what has happened. And he says, this man was the son of God. That's kind of the climax of the whole gospel, the words on the lips of the soldier. Someone said that the gospel, uh, Mark's gospel, the gospels are really the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with a prologue so that you'll understand what's going on in that part of the account. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as, then Mark says, it was written in the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah, it's a big book, isn't it, if you read through it? 66 chapters. You want the whole afternoon. It was a favorite of early Christian preachers, uh, as was the book of Psalms. And uh, here from Isaiah, uh, we have a text that uh, is about, we read it as about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. But the words were originally set in the time of that exile, which was back a few slides, right? When God's people were feeling neglected and when things had gone bad. And in Isaiah chapter 40, which is one of the great chapters of the Bible, uh, the prophet hears, maybe it's an audience with God uh, as part of God's royal court. He hears... A voice says, say this, look, I'm sending my messenger before you Prepare to prepare your way, a voice crying in the wilderness. And he said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Right? Yeah. I don't think he's saying it, but get things ready and the road that he's supposed that is being prepared is the road back from Babylon to Jerusalem in those days it's this good news you're going home and the road's going to be paved you know but early christians who read that text understood there was a greater story and there was a much greater truth so they understood it to be the preparation for the gospel story in Jesus Christ And John is this one, this messenger who comes and says, get things ready, and calls the nation to repentance. It's always interested me that John is an ascetic. Like, he lives out in the wilderness on a diet that not many of us would choose. But Jesus is not an ascetic, is he? John had his disciples who who lived his way of life, presumably. But Jesus comes as world-affirming. He goes to dinners, he, he banquets, weddings, and so on. And this really, that really wasn't John's scene. So that's kind of an important aspect of Jesus' ministry for us. Now, you and I, we're always returning to the beginning, aren't we, in our lives? We go back to beginnings. Sometimes people tell me they've gone back to Europe and they've seen where their parents or their grandparents or so on came from. Go back to the beginnings. And at this time of year, when we return to the birth of Jesus, it's a, a back to the beginning thing, isn't it? And we, we, we refresh ourselves. 
we renew ourselves. In the language of that song I read, we reclothe ourselves by going back to the beginnings. So now I don't know what I'm going to say till the next slide appears. Well, I really do, but. You and I have our own beginning too. Now I mentioned those ancient empires. Paul says that, that when the time was ripe, Jesus was born of woman. When the time was ready, it's like fruit, that's the language. Eh? When time was ripe. Now, Alexander took Greek language and culture all across the ancient world. If you were in Greece, if you were in Iran, Iraq today, if you were in Europe and you, you could read or write, you would learn Greek. The Romans displaced the Greeks and built roads all across the empire. Some of those roads are still there. Um, our roads don't last as long, do they? Someone said we have four seasons in Ontario. We have almost winter, winter, still winter, and road construction. You know, we all, but the Romans built roads all across the empire, and they were safe to travel on. Now, we know in, in, in Judea, Jesus tells the story of the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was robbed on the way. So there were lots of rob, robbers and bandits down there. But generally speaking, across the empire, you could travel in safety. And so early Christian preachers like Paul, they could travel all over the empire and travel pretty safely. And so if we think about how that all unfolds, here we have a, a small group of people small group of people. There's the apostles. Uh, there's a group of women, you know, uh, supporters, those who came with Jesus to Jerusalem. There were other early Christians, women, but it's a small group, isn't it? Would it be as many of us as us? I don't know how many more. It's a small group of people who, thanks to what had happened in days before, language and travel and so on, who took the gospel message everywhere. Took it to India, take it to Britain, take it to Europe, parts of Europe. Uh, so this message went. And eventually, the message came to North America, which is where we come in, isn't it? So we, the gospel came to us, the story came to, to us. And we did something with it, because the story calls us to do something with it. And what happened to us might have been cataclysmic. Because some of you made such a turnaround in your life that you might call it a cataclysmic change. For many of us, it wasn't that way. It was more subtle, you'd say. Because if you were fortunate enough to grow up in the church, you had Christian parents, then you kind of absorbed the gospel, didn't you, by the examples around you. And so there wasn't that dramatic moment, probably. Maybe there was, but probably not, because we all came along, and, and when we heard the message, read the message, were taught the message, uh, for some of us it took a long time. For others, not so long. We, we have our individual stories, but we have kind of a beginning. Now, I have a beginning, too. I have a personal beginning, because when I was just a baby, 
my parents took me to church. And when I got to be an adult, a number of women told me, uh, who had grown up in that church, there were several teenage girls who sat at the back in worship, and they got to hold me, right? I can see them passing me along, right, from one to the other. And that's the <laughs> that is the beginning for me, as far as I know, you know. But we have a beginning. It came to us too, and we have our own personal beginnings. And then there are, there's hearing, but then there are formative experiences that we've had. It could have been uh, uh, a Christian camp. It could have been uh, a youth group that you belong to. It could have been um, uh, uh, doing a kind of a pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Land. It could have been out of curiosity that you learned more and more and more and the message drew you closer and closer to itself. And those formative experiences are important because um, we make the story our own through our experiences. And those formative experiences we have, we continue to, to, to build upon them through the course of our lives. And it's not like they have, they're limited to our youth. Sometimes our formative experiences have continued into, into our adulthood and beyond, or even into our old age, because sometimes people have a kind of, I can call it, a, a cataclysmic experience when they're well advanced in life. I ask this question, when does mature faith begin? When do we become adults, you know? In the book of Hebrews, great sermon, uh, people haven't grown up, you know. They still need milk, not solid food. Yuck, eh? They can't take solid food yet. So we grow up. We become adults. When is that? When do we cross that bridge? I suppose it's different for all of us, isn't it? We cross the bridge at different times, and we become adults, and we are mature in the faith. And so we have learned to love our enemies. We have learned to be, to be honest. We have learned to a lot of things, and we've been able to put them into practice to a, a great extent. And so these are, the, these are the beginnings. This is what I was thinking about for the last few days, maybe weeks, about beginnings, because that, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark fascinates me. How it begins, uh, how it starts, how abrupt it is. He just, Mark says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this kind of brings us into the whole story of Jesus. And eventually as Jesus' disciples move out into the world and beyond Palestine, it uh, comes to us. Now, <clears throat> at Grove Park Home, uh, I have a book called Listening to Your Life, Daily Meditations with Frederick Beckner. Now, once in a while, Matthew mentions him because Matthew reads him too. This is like daily devotions. And uh, when, I, when I go there, I usually read the devotion for the day. And some of them speak to me, and some of them don't speak to me as much. But last week I was reading this, and it's the last slide, and then there's music. He, he writes, and I think this is pretty powerful. For 20 centuries, there have been untold numbers of men and women who, in untold numbers of ways, have been so grasped by the child who was born, so caught up in the message he taught and the life he lived, that they have found themselves profoundly changed 
by their relationship with Him. And when I read that last week, I thought, that's really pretty powerful. And that's where I'd like to, to end my remarks this morning, just leave that with you for your own uh, reflection.